and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Father, we do thank you for your abounding mercy and kindness towards us. We pray that you would fill us now for these brief moments with your spirit, that we might hear your word in the fullness of its power, that you would open our eyes, that you would illuminate our spirits, that we would understand this truth, and that we might, by your spirit, be empowered to keep it with faith and repentance. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the uh, books that we give officer candidates every year as they go through officer training here at Redeemer is an old book by a man named Horatius Bonar. It's a book that's titled Words to Winners of Souls. And it was published originally in the late, well, really mid-19th century. And so therefore, of course, it represents a, a wisdom that belongs to an older time. Certainly, it emphasizes things that do in many ways belong to the old paths. And in the first chapter, what Bonar is doing as he's speaking to uh, those men who would serve in the gospel ministry, he talks about uh, a ministry of power. And it's true, I hope, in your life that, that you long for this church even to be a ministry that is full of power, to have a ministry that's full of power, but at the same time, it's wise, isn't it, for us always to be longing and praying that not only would this church be a place where God's power is known and made manifest, that our homes would be the same, that uh, kids, your schools and neighborhoods would be the same, that our workplaces, even our country would know what it means to experience God's power. And near the end of that chapter, what what Bonar is doing is talking about what he calls the, the necessary elements for a ministry of power. What is it that God ordinarily uses to bring about his work that's of sovereign strength among his people? And he simply says this, nearness to God, intimacy with him, and increasing likeness to Jesus Christ, these are the elements of a ministry of power. And I hope you understand how true that is, that it's through union and communion with God in Jesus Christ and by the Spirit that God ordinarily is bringing his power to play at the churches where we attend and the homes where we live. And no doubt, even in that chapter, although it's directly related to ministers, it's not only ministers who need that nearness to God if they're to experience his power. It's, of course, ordinary church members like yourselves, seated here today, children and students. What they, what they need is God's power, and it's God's power that ordinary flows through these elements of being near to him, experiencing intimacy with him. And that's what James is going to bring to our attention tonight in this text that's just full of command after command after command. He's going to help us know uh, what it means to live a life that is lived in the power of God's grace. Because if you were with us last week, what we saw in verses 1 through 6 was what I called the uh, part 1 of James's spiritual checkup. 
like a good spiritual doctor, he, he was telling us that there was this a problem that existed in his early hearers. It was a problem whose symptoms, if you just glance back up to verse 1 of chapter 4, uh, were known with these quarrels and fighting that were always constantly happening in the homes and churches of his early readers. And he said those were the symptoms of the true problem which was found in the subsequent verses that they do not have because they do not ask. And, and really the summary statement that he gave related to the problem was in verse 4 and 5 as he, he was denouncing their love for the world, their longing for worldly pleasures and, and worldly passions. And he didn't leave them, if you were with us last week, without a remedy. He gave the answer to this problem if you just glance back up at verse 6. But God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to uh, the humble. And so what we're asking along the way tonight in the verses before us is, what does it look like when you live a life in the fullness of the power that belongs to God's grace? What does it look like when God's grace does indeed flood into your life? And what might change How might you speak and how might you act in a way that shows you indeed have encountered and been a recipient of God's grace in Jesus Christ? And so what I want you to see in these verses is is really two simple points. When it comes to true Christian piety, we might say, pursuits of holiness, it's seen, number one, in humble submission. That's really going to be verses 7 through 10. And then number 2, verse 11 and 12, it's seen in humble speech. So how are you going to know when God's grace is working its way into your life? So this is part 2 of his spiritual checkup. And along the way, I do hope as you see these commands, you might be asking yourself with honest and humble self-examination, what does my life reveal about the Lord that I profess to be true and how I act and how I speak? Okay, so... Humble submission, number one, look at verse seven. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Therefore, of course, linking verse seven to what's come before. Now, kids, do you understand what it means to submit? Uh, One of the ways we might be able to illustrate it is a story that I can tell you about one of the men that used to serve at a pastor at a church where I previously served. He had a particular affinity for a certain kind of breed of dog. He actually trained these dogs, and he would often talk about how he was training them and how he had to get them to this point that he would call point of submission. And what he would do when the pups were young is that he would, he would take them outside and they would wrestle, the, the owner and these dogs. It was playful, but it was rather competitive, he said. And then whenever he could get the pup to a point where it would sigh, in a very particular way, he always said. If it sighed in this way, it was, it was the dog recognizing, I yield to you as master. And so he would always wrestle with these dogs until they would sigh. And kids, that's a good way to even think about submission to the Lord. It's yielding, isn't it, to his way. It's yielding to his word. It's yielding to his will. It's, it's recognizing that God has called you in his son, Jesus Christ, and you're not the Lord of your own life. That God is the king of your heart. It's not for you to pursue your own passions and and pleasures, but to pursue what God desires, to follow what he commands and not what you so desperately want to be true. So submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And verse 7 is not just about submission, it's also about striving. You see verse 7 continues, resist the devil and he will flee from you. If you know your Bible well, that, that one verse, James 4, 7, 
It almost gets the exact same language in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 through 9, about submission and striving against Satan. And so if you kind of pair these texts together, it almost seems like for the early church there in the first century, submission to God and striving against Satan was just a fair and healthy but quick summary of what the Christian life entails. Submitting to God's way and word and striving against the enemy. And if that's true, that these Two commands represent something of like early church's emphasis on what it means to pursue godliness. I wonder if you think, submitting to God, striving against Satan, if, if we perhaps underemphasize maybe one of those at the expense of the other. And I think it's probably true, and I trust many of you would agree with me, that at least in our circles, we probably rightly do a good job with emphasizing submission to God's way and to his word. But maybe we don't emphasize striving against Satan in the same way. There was a mother in our church recently that was telling me that a couple of her young children during family worship when they pray at night, uh, these young children often pray every single evening, and God, we pray that you would crush Satan's head. And I thought, that is a wonderful and biblical prayer to pray, isn't it? That you would come and crush Satan's head. Because we're called to strive against him in hope, and aren't we, in expectation, because there's a promise contained, isn't there, at the end of verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. He's a foe that flees according to God's power in Jesus Christ. And I hope that you students recognize that Satan strives against you. One of the reasons you must strive as a child of God against Satan is because Satan's always striving against you, and he's altogether cunning, he's altogether powerful, he's altogether wise. But recognize here, he's a defeated foe that God has already triumphed over Satan in the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And so we can fight the battle knowing that the victory is already won. And those of you that are somewhat attuned to athletics and games and competitions like this know that when when an athlete goes into a match, knowing that the outcome is already decided, there's an unusual degree of optimism and, and hope that goes into uh, such a battle. And the same should be said of us. You see verse 8 continues with the commands, draw near to God and, and he will draw near to you. Uh, the idea here is, of course, that God does not receive us if we draw near to him as much as it is because we've been received by the Father in the Son and through the Spirit, then then we have the assurance and the confidence that we can draw near to God as, as he draw draws near to us, but the approach of confidence can't be a casual approach, which is why verse 8 continues, cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's priestly language. Let's take an imagery from the Old Testament when the priests would have to cleanse their hands, they'd have to go through these ceremonial washings, they'd have to prepare themselves in such a way to meet with God. And while, of course, it's not the same thing in the New Covenant age for us as we prepare to meet with God, we want to recognize even as James is exhorting us, is that God is all pure in his power. And yes, we come to him as weak and feeble and and needy sinners, but we don't come to him casually. We want to come with him, the hearts that are full of his his grace and, and holiness, unless we miss the urgency and the importance of those commands. Look at the next round of commands in verse nine. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, students, you could be forgiven if you read a verse like James 4.9 and think, 
right, that doesn't sound right. You know, isn't it true in Scripture that we're to rejoice always, we're to be full of gladness and gratitude? And then here comes James saying that we're supposed to be wretched, we're supposed to mourn, we're supposed to be leap, uh, weeping, there's supposed to be joy that's not turned into gloom. Like, what do, we, what do we make with those kind of commands? Well, you want to recognize that in the span of really just a verse, James is employing both priestly language, cleanser, hands and purify your hearts and prophetic language which is what we just read would be be wretched and mourn because for his early readers we know from the beginning of chapter one were, were largely uh, situated in the background of Judaism that they would have been familiar with these prophetic writings where God's prophets these covenant lawyers of old that they would come along and what they would cry out by way of exhorting God's people to repentance is this idea of you can't be casual towards your sin, you must be earnest with your sin, that you want to turn your worldly laughing and worldly joy into dust and ashes and repentance. And that's really what he means here, especially in light of the worldliness he's already condemned in verse 4 and 5. That this light levity that we experience in the world that so often masks nothing more than sin and transgression, what is much better and much proper is a, a sincere heart that's contrite and repents before the Lord with this, this imagery of mourning and weeping over our sin. And I wonder when was the last time that you perhaps felt that weeping sorrow over your impoverished state in sin. It should be normal, shouldn't it, when God's people are struck by sin and overcome by temptation, that there is a sense in which the soul mourns and weeps because we have shamed ourselves and broken the law that God has given to us. So verse 10 continues, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So it's humble submission, you see that? Humble submission. Now, we also see true Christian piety in verse 11 and 12 in humble speech. Look at verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Do not speak evil against one another. The biggest commentary that I have on James was written by an old uh, preacher named Thomas Manton. I mean, this, this thing is gargantuan, it's giant. And he meditates very deeply on all of James' instruction. When he gets to verse 11, he rightly reminds us that we should be afraid to speak evil of anyone. I mean, you find that language in Titus chapter 3, don't you? At the very beginning, verse 1 and 2. But we want to emphasize even verse 11 is telling us not to speak evil against those whom, as Manton talks about, those whom God delights to honor, namely brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And yet he goes on to say in his commentary in a very striking way, and yet is, I'm sorry, and yet what is more common among us? He says, quote, John the Baptist's head on a platter is a usual dish at our meals. And by that he means we speak so often evil against God's people. Depending on the translation that's in front of you, you might have a translation that even rightly understands verse 11 to be speaking about slander, you know, that speaking of evil in secret that's meant to harm another person. And I do hope you understand the degree to which the tongue is important and powerful. If you've, of course, been with us in our weeks of study through James, it's no surprise that James once again emphasizes godly speech is vital, that it's, it's pivotal in the Christian life. He said at the end of chapter 1 that if we don't bridle our tongue, 
keep it under control. Our religion and devotion is worthless. Remember in chapter three, he talked about the tongue as this kind of world of evil that just this tiny little instrument can set things on fire and wreak all manner of devastation and destruction. And now he's reminding us once again that we dare not speak evil against those whom God has delighted to call into his family. We do not speak evil. We do not slander those that are our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And I suppose that you might even sit in here this evening and you know the the power of someone speaking evil against you or, or slandering you. You might know what it means that words can leave scars, can't they, on your heart. And sometimes those scars seem altogether impossible to remove. And so to make sure we understand just how dreadful this sin is, look at how verse 11 continues. James says, The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. It may seem a little bit wordy there at the end of verse 11. I mean, what is he simply saying? That through evil speech and slander, we act as though we sit in judgment upon God's law. Well, the idea is actually quite simple. Because what James is saying is God's law, you can think of Leviticus chapter 19. It's told us and commanded us that we're to speak words of kindness in love to our neighbor. So when... We instead speak evil towards our neighbor. We act as though we have a law that is external to God's law that is more authoritative, more powerful. In other words, we're the ones to decide what is right and what is wrong. And so therefore, we've not only broken the law with such sin, we've acted as though we are judges over the law, getting to decide what's right and wrong. And the problem, of course, with, with us thinking of ourselves as judges is that there is only one judge. Look at verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And I do think it's important to recognize here that the Bible does talk about the propriety when when it's good and, and even necessary for God's people to judge Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, you might know in, uh, what is it, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when, when Paul talks about what right do I have to judge those outside the church, but I am right to judge those that are inside the church. And what you want to recognize is that Christ in his kindness has given these keys of the kingdom to his ministers, to his church leaders, and oftentimes in cases of discipline, that's one way in which we, we go about judging properly others, but it's keys of authority that he's entrusted to the body, not to individuals. So God often thus brings about his judgment through the church corporately, but not through Christians individually in the same way. So look back then on your last few weeks, recent months. To what degree has humble submission been thriving in your life? To what degree is humble speech increasingly coming from your mouth? This is what it means to live in the grace that is abounding and knows no limit in Jesus Christ. Boys and girls, men and women who are growing in humble submission and and humble speech. One of my closest friends when he was in his, I think it was late 20s, it could have been early 30s, he was a single man at the time and he just kind of up and decided that he was going to move to Africa and take a job. 
in Africa. And so as he was preparing to live in this African country for some substantial amount of time, he began to wean himself off these kind of ordinary habits and rhythms that marked life in North Texas. And off to Africa he went. And this was before the days where he had FaceTime, where you could talk all the time and, and these kind of things. And so by the time he came back to America, uh, he was a totally different person. I mean, he looked different. He sounded different. His skin color was altogether different as he was out in the sun all the time after always being behind a, a cubicle. In many ways, uh, those of us who were friends with him at the time thought John came back. And, I mean, he's a totally different person. And and James is wanting to tell us that for those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, the exact same thing is true, that we've been weaned off the ordinary rhythms and ordinary desires and realities that belong to a love for the world. And we begin to look different. We begin to sound different. It's because we are actually altogether different according to our coming to Jesus Christ in faith. And so what I want to do as we begin to close is help you see three more things from this passage of what it means to live different in light of God's grace as we consider the importance of holiness and Christian piety. So number one, uh, the call to godliness is one of eternal urgency. It's one of eternal urgency. You know, you can't read through James without recognizing that he is a teacher and he's an instructor in the truth that's full of earnestness. Like, you, you see what he says, of course, again in verse Eight at the end, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's not a man that's given to sugarcoating the truth. He says at the end, doesn't he, that uh, you've taken a seat of judgment that belongs to God alone, and this judge is able to destroy, and and he's able uh, to save. Uh, There's a holiness without which we will not see the Lord, Hebrews 12 tells us. That when we come to all of these litany of commands, it's almost like a scatter shot of instruction that James is giving us in verse after verse. Do this, be this, think this, speak this. These are matters of the most eternal urgency, which is why he seems to be calling on this urgent, earnest language of pay attention, don't miss the truth, make sure you see the reality that godliness is of eternal urgency. It's not just about urgency. What we want to see secondly, it also calls us to consistency. To consistency. That's the, the language really at the end of verse 8 when it speaks about being double-minded. <clears throat> uh, you could translate that more literally as double-souled. He's saying that too often, and this is actually something he's already brought out in his letter going back to chapter 1, too often Christians just are people who vacillate in the world. And kids, what that means is, well, they're one way at home and a different way at church. They're one way at school and they're a different way in youth ministry. They're, they're one way at the workplace and they're a different person in their small group. And what he's saying is there can't be any sort of divided heart in following the Lord Jesus Christ. There's this godly consistency. There's this godly integrity. There's this surety and steadfastness that belongs to true holiness that wherever you find a person of God there should be the same person of God in that place if that makes sense a person not given to be one person here and another person over there there's this consistency that belongs to the life of holiness so there's urgency, there's consistency and finally I do want you to see that there's intimacy the call to godliness is the promise of, of intimacy He says at the beginning of verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Uh, 
for Jewish readers and hearers in the first century, it would have been altogether stunning to hear this kind of a promise. Because understand what God's nearness meant to God's people in all the centuries prior to Jesus Christ. You might think about the book of Exodus. God redeems his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. He delivers them through the waters of judgment at the Red Sea. And as he promised he was going to do, he's going to take them through the wilderness to bring them to Mount Sinai. Then when they get to Mount Sinai, they find out that he's soon going to descend upon the mountain. He's going to draw near to his people. But if you know that scene well in Exodus chapter 19 and the next few chapters, God draws near on the mountain, but he prohibits his people from drawing near. He says, don't come near lest I break out against you, such as the terrifying judgment and awesome majesty that belongs to the Lord's holiness. And so as the centuries move on, isn't it true in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant age, that there was only one person that really got to draw near to God, and that was the high priest as he came into the Holy of Holies. And that one person only got to draw near to God really on one day of the year, which was the Day of Atonement. Drawing near to God was a terrifying thing. But now because of what Jesus Christ has done, notice what he says, children, every single day, anyone and everyone can draw near to God. Because of faith in Jesus Christ, your sin is washed away, you're cleansed and made new, and he invites you to come into his presence through his word and spirit and, and draw near to him. And isn't it true, even in our own life here on earth, that so much of the vitality of, of human relationships is found in the vibrancy of its intimacy? I wonder how your intimacy is with the Lord. How is your consistency before the Lord? How is your urgency in the Lord? Let's pray together. Well, Father, we do thank you that you are God who has made such wonderful promises to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, and that we who are once far off have been brought near as near to your table in your family because of the shed blood of your Son. Uh, draw us in, Father, as we want to be conformed into your likeness, as we want to know what nearness and intimacy with you looks like, that it might transform us ever more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, as we live increasingly in humble submission and have humble speech. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.